0: Welcome to Simply By Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be
1: found at our website, gracelife.org. Now here's Dr. Bing.
0: So who are you and what do you see when you look in
1: the mirror? Do you see who you really are or who others say that you are? It would be nice if fairy tales agreed with real life. Unfortunately, most of us probably live based on
0: who others have said that we are instead of what God has said that we are. There's another fairy tale called The Ugly Duckling about a mother duck who notices an extra large egg in her nest, and yet she hatches them all, and then this egg hatches out to an ugly gray little thing, not like the fuzzy little balls that the others hatched out to. And this ugly duckling grows up being ridiculed by all his friends in the barnyard characters to the point where uh he is terribly hurt. And then when he gets old enough, he's made fun of because he's so clumsy. And then he runs away and he hides himself. And finally he has peace, but he's living all by himself. And then the cold winter comes, and a farmer finds him almost half frozen to death, takes him home, and through the winter, this little um, ugly duckling grows up in the farmer's care. But when the spring comes, he goes back to the pond, and he, he notices these beautiful, large white birds flying overhead, and wishes he could be like them. And then he looks in the water and sees his reflection, and guess what? He is like He's no longer the ugly duckling that everyone told him he was.
1: He has changed. He has been transformed. But fairy tales are one thing. Real life is another.
0: Most of us and many of us are confined by the opinions of what others say that we are. By the tough experiences of life that have conditioned our thinking
1: to believe certain things about ourselves. There are many reasons why
0: we often live under the influence of others. Others can be very influential influential in our lives. Lewis Smedes, a psychologist, says that there are three defining uh, sources for crippling opinions about ourselves. He says there is the source of secular culture, which tries to tell us who we are. There is the source of graceless religion, that condemns people, makes them feel guilty about who they are. And then there's unaccepting parents as well. There are probably even more sources for why we believe what we do about ourselves. Um, childhood experiences are critical. Parents who are legalistic, a church that is abusive, children of alcoholics or, or divorced parents know that of which I speak can often influence your thoughts about yourselves. You grow up with a handicap, a stutter, an early failure in life that people ridicule, a fall into sin, all influence the way we think about ourselves.
1: These influences are the parents. Um, these, chil- these influences are grace killers and produce children like ourselves, who, have insignif- who feel
0: insignificant to one degree or another. Let's name these children. Some of these children would be here in this room this morning. There's Polly People Pleaser. Polly People Pleaser, you see, feel, fears rejection. So she tries to conform to people around her and do what they expect of her, what she thinks they expect of her anyway. She ends up being quite a bit phony and really a hypocrite hiding behind a mask. But what she really craves is approval from other people because at some point in her life, she never really got that approval. Then there's Peter Perfectionist. He's a very critical person, critical of himself and critical of others. He performs well because he's worried about how he feels about himself and how others will accept him. Someone said that a perfectionist is somebody who takes great pains, and gives them to others. The perfectionist is afraid to take risks because he's afraid of failure. Failure makes him feel badly about himself, and he thinks others will feel badly about him as well. Then there's Gail guilty. Gail lives under clouds of condemnation, always feeling inferior. She feels like she's blown it somewhere in the past, and God doesn't accept her any longer. And she feels that others look down on her as well because of her sin. Or because of her failure.
1: Or how about Clarence the Closed? Clarence the Closed feels insecure. And you see, that's why he's all locked up tight
0: in his little world. He has shut down his emotions. He is antisocial. He guards himself carefully. Sometimes Clarence the Closed will strike out first and alienate people in anger or resentment or sarcasm because he doesn't want people to get close to him and find out what he's really like. He doesn't take risks, and so he never fails, but he lives a lonely life. Finally, there's Pat the Proud. Pat is so proud that he can't rec- he can't admit weaknesses. He knows everything, he can do anything, and being on top kind of strokes his ego. But failure devastates him.
1: He can't handle failure, or he'll grow angry. But you see Pat the Proud is a very insecure person. All of these are the children
0: of grace killers, and there's many more. We could talk about those who are addicted. We could talk about those who are obsessive. We could talk about those who are depressed or suicidal or get into the extremes of life or find homes in the cults. But for one reason or other, these are people who are afraid to be who they really are, afraid to be real because they think people
1: won't like me. Something has conditioned them, something has conditioned us to believe an unbiblical view of ourselves.
0: I like what David Siemens wrote in a book called Healing for Damaged Emotions. He, he compares people to trees. Trees, and you know how uh, with a tree, if you cut it, saw it down, you can see the different rings in it, and, and those rings can be interpreted. But he says in most of the parks, the naturalists can show you a cross-section of a great tree that they've cut and point out the rings of the tree, what the rings reveal about the developmental history of that tree year by year. Here's a ring that represents a year when there was a terrible drought. Here's a couple of rings from years when there was too much rain. Here's where the tree was struck by lightning. And here's some normal years of growth, growth. This ring shows a forest fire that almost destroyed the tree. Here's another of savage blight and disease. All of this lies embedded in the heart of the tree, representing the autobiography of its growth. Now he compares it to people. He says, that's the way it is with us. Just a few minutes beneath the protective bark, the concealing protective mask, are the recorded rings of our lives. There are scars of ancient painful hurts, as when a little boy rushed downstairs one Christmas dawn and discovered in his stocking a dirty old rock put there to punish him for some trivial boyhood naughtiness. This scar is eaten away at him, causing all kinds of interpersonal difficulties. And here's the discoloration of a tragic stain that muddied all of his life. As years ago, behind the barn or in the haystack or out in the woods, a big brother took a little sister and introduced her to the mysteries of, no, the miseries of sex. And here we find the pressure of a painful, repressed memory of running after an alcoholic father who was about to kill the mother and then of rushing for the butcher's knife. Such scars have been buried in pain for so long that they are causing hurt and rage that are inexplicable and these scars are not touched by conversion and sanctifying grace or by the ordinary benefits of prayer in the rings of our thoughts and emotions he says the record is there the memories are recorded and all are alive and they directly and deeply affect our concepts our feelings our relationships they affect the way we look at life and at God and at others and at ourselves you see how we really don't see an accurate picture when most of us look in the mirror we really don't know who we are we
1: have been so conditioned by the circumstances and the people throughout our life in first corinthians chapter 15 we're going to see a truth that can set us free from these
0: wrong thoughts about ourselves in first corinthians chapter 15 we're going to see how grace should condition how we think about ourselves. We see Paul's perception of himself through God's wonderful grace. And what he concludes about himself is worth all the self-help books in Walden and all the counseling and psychologists in the United States of America. Let's read the passage. But we'll start in verse 16. Paul is speaking of the resurrection and how it is crucial to the gospel that saves us. So anybody who's saved by the gospel has to appreciate the resurrection. Anybody who appreciates the resurrection has to appreciate what God's life can do in us. But he says after that, after he was Jesus appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, he says after that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time, or literally, as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in Paul shows in this passage how grace tempered his thinking about himself in two ways. First of all, we see that grace allowed him to admit his weaknesses. When we understand grace, it allows us to admit our weaknesses. Look again at verse 8. Last of all, he puts himself at the bottom of the list when he says, last of all, he was seen by me also. You see, the other apostles had spent years in Jesus' presence and had seen the risen Lord after Easter, after Resurrection Day. And they had seen him and been with him and eaten with him on the shore and eaten with him in the upper room. Paul had none of this. While they were doing that, Paul was out trying to catch these critters, these Christians, and persecuting them and blaspheming God. And he was on his way to Damascus to continue doing that when Jesus finally appeared to him last of all. And he saw the risen Christ. Paul was at the bottom of the list. He not only was at the bottom of the list, but look what he says at the end of verse 8, as one born out of due time or as one abnormally born, literally. The word was used for a miscarriage, a dead birth, or a dead
1: fetus. Paul was literally saying as one who was aborted. Insignificant. It happened to him suddenly. It was unlikely. He was the last in
0: line. But Paul carried with him in his apostleship the stigma of being like an unwanted child, a mistaken child, a mistake in life.
1: He wasn't being falsely humble here to get people's sympathy up. He was just telling the history of his life. Even his name, Paul, literally meant little
0: one. And it seems that he may have been playing to what the Corinthians already thought about him. You remember at the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you're not mature, but you're carnal. You have divisions and quarrels among you. One says, I'm from Peter. and One says, I'm of Apollos. Another says, I'm of Jesus. Not many wanted to claim Paul because Paul was short. Paul wasn't a good preacher. He says that about himself. His name means little one. He wasn't with the original apostles. He came tagged along later. Certainly, he's not as important as them. And Paul says,
1: he agrees with all of this. He calls himself the least in verse 9. I am the least of the apostles who am
0: not worthy to be called an apostle. I agree with you, he's saying. I don't deserve to be called an apostle
1: because I persecuted the church of God. None of the others had done that. But by the grace of God, Paul was able to admit
0: his weaknesses. He was able to face them. He was able to discuss them with others
1: and talk about them. In another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul calls himself, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He says in verse 15 of
0: that passage, he says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. By God's grace, Paul could realize his past, admit his past, admit his wrongs, and call himself the chief of all sinners. When we understand the grace of God, we could admit who we were because we know we are no longer that. We can talk about abuse. We could talk about rejection. We can talk about our sin. We can talk about our immorality because we are different, because God has forgiven us you understand that the word forgiven literally means to be released from? To be freed from something? As it was used in the ancient days of being freed from a debt or freed from prison. When we are forgiven by Jesus Christ, we are released from our sin. But we are released from its consequences and uh, its eternal consequences. And we are released from what it should be doing
1: in our lives. We are no longer seen by God as a sinner, but he views us now as a son. So
0: how should we see ourselves? And why should we beat up on ourselves if that's how God sees us? And by the way, those of us who are campaigning for that position of chief of sinners, it's occupied, the position's
1: filled. Paul says he owns that position. Someone said that God has seen you at your worst, and he still loves you,
0: and the reason he still loves you is because you and I are his children. That's who we are. Why then be bound by the opinion of what others say that we are, or others think that we are, or others have told us that we are? Why be confined? Why live with those chains? I saw on TV one time a, a special about elephants in India and how they, they went out in the bush. They actually lassoed an elephant, if you can believe it. Of course, they're riding on elephants. And they lasso these elephants, and they bring them in, and they put them in these huge pens. And, uh, and then they, what they do is they, they terrify these creatures with fire. And they keep them up all night, and they taunt them, and they beat them, and they yell at them. And uh, just scare them to death so that it just basically loses its mind. But the next
1: day, that elephant is timid and controllable. They've broken its spirit. It's a sad thing to say, see. But you know, that's how many of us are. We've limited
0: ourselves because at some point in the past, we've been harassed or intimidated or scared to death about
1: something. And we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten that there is a God who has created us, special, a God who
0: has paid the highest price in the universe for us, and a God who loves us as his children, and a God who
1: would never reject us. So why are we hiding? Why are we ashamed? Why do we feel the way we do about ourselves? Can't we have the grace, then, to admit our
0: weaknesses, our shortcomings, our failures, and even our sins? I have a great degree of admiration for those who can admit weaknesses. I think of uh, people on TV, TV stars like, uh, like Willard Scott. You know, he has a bald head. And, uh, and he wears hats now and then, but usually, you know, he'll, he'll make fun of himself. Or how about Michael J. Fox, who not too long ago told everybody about his um, Parkinson's disease and how his left side shakes so much and did interviews and I see somebody at Walmart with uh, the other day with a, um, a prosthesis from the knee down wearing shorts.
1: Fellow at the fitness club here works out regularly He's prosthesis from the hips down, wears shorts. They don't seem to care that anybody
0: knows about their disfigurement. I admire that in a person. They somehow have found the ability to feel comfortable with themselves. So what we're trying to do is is say is that it goes way beyond our physical appearance into who we are, how we think. Do you feel comfortable with yourself, the way God has made you? Do you let the events of the
1: past cower you in fear or strengthen you by God's grace? I think when we understand the grace of God, we, like Paul, can let the cracks show in our lives. We can learn to be ourselves instead of who others, we want others to think we are. Grace allows us to admit our weaknesses, but it also allows us to understand
0: our strengths. And Paul goes on to talk about what the grace of God has done for him. He says in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He recognizes his sinful past, but he says it's by God's grace, I am what I am in the future. The grace of God makes us who we are today, and who exactly are we? You see, he's just making a plain statement of fact here. He's not bragging about anything. He's just saying, I am who I am by the grace of God. The God who made us, gave us new birth, made us a new person in Jesus Christ, and he's making us more and more into the image of his son, whom he has promised we will be like someday. That's who we are. That is our destiny. That's who we must remember we are. You see, Paul is not being proud at all. In fact, to the contrary, he's just simply making a statement of fact. He's being realistic. To understand who we are by grace takes away all pride. We can't be proud of what God has done
1: for us because he has done it. To understand grace is to have a realistic view of ourselves.
0: John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace in his older life, had a practice of getting together with a friend for breakfast. And after breakfast, they would read a portion of Scripture. But since Newton's eyes were growing dim, he asked his friend to read this same passage, 1 Corinthians 15. And after his friend read it, he was silent for a few minutes. And then he made this comment. He said, I am not what I ought to be, however imperfect and deficient I am. I'm not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good. I'm not what I hope to be, but soon I shall put off immortality and with it all sin. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan and can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God,
1: I am what I am. You see, friends, we're not what we ought to be. We're not what we hope to be. But at least we're not what we used to be because of the grace of God. And Paul is
0: saying in verse 9, by this grace, I am who I am. I am an apostle. You may not think much of me. I didn't ask to be an apostle, he's saying to them. But I am an apostle. And it is by God's grace. It was a gift that was given to him. Not only that, but he claims that it is the grace of God, by the grace of God, that he he's able to accomplish anything. For he goes on in, uh, in verse 10 and says, but I labored more abundantly. He says his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Paul says, because of that grace that took root in my life, I was able to work harder than all the other apostles. But it wasn't me, he repeats, it was the grace of God in me. When we understand the grace of God, we can't be proud for who we are. God has done everything, and we can't be proud for what we've done as well, because God accomplishes it through us. When it is by grace, then the glory goes to God, whether it's in our salvation or whether it's in our ministry, our lifestyle, and the things that we're able to accomplish in life. You see, it's not that Paul was trying to pay God back. By saying, well, he saved me by grace, now I gotta pay him back. Because that's not what grace is. Grace doesn't ask us to pay back. Grace is a gift. You don't ask anything back in return for a gift. Paul wasn't working to pay God back. He was saying his work itself was even by the grace of God.
1: So he couldn't take any glory in himself, any pride in his accomplishment. I read an example of the exact opposite of this attitude. A perfect example of ungrace.
0: You've heard of Yul Brynner, the actor who died a few years ago. In his book, We Are Driven, his story is told. As a teenager, he was addicted to opium. And later in life, he became addicted to many other things. He smoked three to five packs of cigarettes a day. He would be obsessive about things. He took up stamp collecting, and in six months' time, he had a collection worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. But his greatest obsession of life was his starring role acting as the King of Siam in the production, The King and I, which was on Broadway forever. And whenever it died, he was so obsessed with it that he would revive it again and again. He started over 4,500 4, performances that stretched over three decades. He was so driven that he insisted on performing the part himself eight times a week. He gulped oxygen between acts, and he would always stay afterwards for an hour so that his fans would not see the bodyguards carrying him into his car. The only time he was happy was when he was on stage as the king of Siam. And he began to see himself as invincible, and his role as Yul Brynner began to merge with the king of Siam so that he offstage became very demanding. When people didn't cater to his every whim, he would just fly off the handle and become enraged and fly into a frenzy. When the show went on the road, he demand, his contract demanded a special dressing room painted in chocolate brown that, that would have a special hammock, and he even demanded a, a bulletproof limo,
1: limousine. People don't shoot actors, do they? They shoot kings. Though he had been raised a Christian, he strayed
0: from the church. And his son wrote in a book about him. His son himself, a recovering alcoholic, wrote this. The central teaching of Christianity had held no attraction to Yule, and he never pretended differently. Having spent a lifetime imposing his will on the world about him, he had no patience for those who prayed, Thy will be done. This was Greek to Yule ego unbridled yule was willing was willingness to run amuck his rationale was that the king and i was some sort of holy crusade that took care of all the moral obligations he had if he just kept performing eight shows a week he was justified in doing anything to anyone anywhere near the end of his life his highest award for his professional career came at the tony awards presented to him in new york city After the others had received their statuettes, he came up on stage to receive his. He smiled and simply said, I just want to thank
1: you, old Brenner. What an ungraceful attitude. When we do away with the grace of God, you see,
0: there's no one left to take credit for your accomplishments except you. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that labored in me. It's not me, but it was the grace of God. He says he gives all credit And all glory to God. The Bible says that when Jesus saves us, he puts in us a treasure. But that treasure is in clay pots. The treasure is the gospel, the grace of God. But it's in clay pots. We're just a pot. Anything good about us is by his
1: grace. He's the light that shines in us and through us to accomplish what God wants us to do. So when we're tempted to think that we're indispensable, remember that God can raise up anybody to do what we're doing. What we've accomplished is by his grace. So how do you measure your significance? By what you look like, what you accomplish, what others have said about you, the grades on your report card, the dollar amount on your paycheck, the home where you live. The car that you drive, the clothes that you wear, the designer names that you have on? Or do you measure your significance by who you are in Jesus Christ? I see people all the time struggling, laboring, stretching, racing to the stores to keep up with the clothes, the appliances, the car that will tell other people, I am significant, I am cool, I am okay.
0: My friends, you're not cool or significant okay because of what you wear or because of what people say or don't say about you, good or bad. You are significant and okay because God has accepted you and God loves you
1: as his children. So why the scramble and why the worry to please other people? Now you should use deodorant, you should dress nicely, you should have a safe car, and if God gives you the means to get more, you may want to take advantage of that. But why the worry? Why the fretting? You're okay, whether you've got a a ring in your belly button or not. God says you're okay. God loves you. Who do you see in the mirror? You are a Christian, that means Christ's one. You are a son of God,
0: you are redeemed, you're an heir, you're going to rule with him, you're more than a conqueror. Jesus even calls you his brother and sister. The Bible says you're accepted in the beloved.
1: Live up to what God thinks about you. Live up to who he thinks you are. And remember, and forget about what
0: others say, Forget about what you've learned in your childhood or or upbringing, what you've been conditioned to think, and think about what God says you are. If we were to go back and apply grace to these children of grace killers, we would tell Polly, people pleaser, be yourself. Don't worry about pleasing everybody else. Just
1: please God. God accepts you the way you are, and he loves you. We would tell Peter, perfectionist, chill out. It's okay to be less than perfect relax. Gail the guilty, we'd say, child, you are forgiven. Jesus no longer sees you
0: in sin. And Clarence the close, we'd say, don't be afraid to let
1: crack show in your life. Don't be afraid to love other people, get close to them. Risk it. Risk being hurt. You will be hurt, but God loves you. And to Pat the proud, we would say, we're not impressed with what you do, and we love you even when you're not on top of the pile. It's okay to fail. When you look in the mirror, do you like what you see? God does. God likes you, and you need to come to grips with that. It's hard to accept ourselves, but God accepts you, and you need to. Now, an interesting thing in the gospel is that at the
0: very beginning of Jesus' career in his ministry, better word, the very first thing he did remember was that he got baptized. He had done nothing. He gets baptized, and at the baptism, the heavens open up, and this great voice comes down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased.
1: Wait a minute. Jesus hasn't done a thing yet. Yet God is happy with him. Why? Because he said. This is my beloved son.
0: He didn't say, I'm well pleased in him because he's done miracles or because he's helped people or because he shut the Pharisees up. He said, This is my beloved son, and I'm just pleased with him because he's my son. My friends, we don't have to work to earn God's approval or perform to be accepted by him. God looks at you and he says, I love you because you're my son, because you're my daughter. We don't have to live in fear and bondage to the past or others' opinions about ourselves, because
1: God loves us. That ought to be a freeing truth for us. We ought to be free to be ourselves, to take off the phoniness and the masks, and to live a life of sincerity and honesty with one another, and to rejoice in the differences.
0: God has made us different from one another. And not only that, but it frees us to accept others and be less
1: critical or less judgmental of others and to love them and to forgive them as God has forgiven them. Maybe it's time to take another look in the mirror, to behold a new reflection, and to see this time not what others have said that we
0: are, but who God says that we are. Maybe it's time to stretch our wings and see if we really can fly with the swans.
1: To try it again. Remember who you are. I want to pray now with you. You would bow your heads. I want to invite you to thank God for who you are. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm saying this, that I
0: know that there were bad experiences in life. I know that some of you have been through very terrible times. You were torn up as a child by your parents or by your church or by uh, unloving classmates who told you things about yourself that may have been true. But
1: you know, God loves you, and God has always loved you, and he's always accepted And he knows what it's like to hurt. And he knows what it's like to be rejected. But by his grace, you are not what you used to be. You're not what, yet what you're going to be. But you are what you are. And you're valuable to him. And we can talk about that. and We can accept that. I want to invite
0: you this morning to thank God for your past, as painful as it was. To thank God for who you are now. In Jesus Christ, to thank God for who you are becoming and for what you will be someday. Can you just thank
1: Him? That's that's that takes faith. I'm challenging you to believe. Challenging you to accept yourself to be free and to rejoice in the grace of God. Father, where sin has abounded and has scarred and defaced and marred and
0: twisted and perverted. Grace has abounded much more. You have made us to be like Jesus. What a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful identification. What a wonderful image we see when we look into the mirror of the word of God. And it it reflects back to us the beauty of Jesus Christ and his love. A total forgiveness and unaccepting, unconditional love. Oh, Father, heal the past and the hurts that we have. May we be able to face them and say, but yet by the grace
1: of God, I am what I am. I'm a child of God now. And by the grace of God, I'm able to do what I do. And I'm going to be happy with myself. And I'm going to use it for the glory of God. And you're going to get the credit. And I'm going to risk a little bit more from now on to reflect the grace of God in my life. And I'm not going to hide my fe- from fear or cower in shame. I am forgiven. I am loved. And I am me just as you want me. May that be our prayer today, Lord. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd
0: love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at
1: gracelife.org. See you next time.